Thank you all so much. Let's actually leave that up for a second, gang. Leave that, leave that up for a second. Uh, let me just say about Alpha, I've had the experience, the opportunity to experience it. And if you have not, you need to. I mean, it, so you need to go to this. It is gonna be phenomenal. We all know, here's a couple things I think we recognize. We all know that we should be talking with people about important issues in life. One of the things I find so odd about American cultures, if you go anywhere else in the world, it is the most normal thing to talk about faith, religion, life, politics, just the things that affect life. That's what people all around the world talk about. And in America, we get so skittish to talk about them, don't we? Yes, we do. You're skittish to say yes right now, right? I mean, we just do. It's so strange to me. Anytime I'm in another country, all they want to talk about is, they want to talk about faith. They want to talk about life. That's a weird thing about the cultural context in which we live. So we recognize, we recognize that you know, if those of you who are followers of Jesus, that you know that God has called you to engage people in these kinds of conversations. We know that you know that, but we also know that often you feel like you're on an island trying to figure out how to have those conversations by yourself in the workplace or in your driveway, and that is hard to do. One of the mistakes we have made, I think, in the evangelical church is that we have imagined that we are supposed to do this work of having conversations about Jesus and sharing what he's done and how much he loves people, that we're supposed to only do that ever by ourselves. We have forsaken the idea that we are to do this together that it's good for us to do it together. And that's really what Alpha does. It provides you a context within your church to say, come and have the conversation with a whole group of people. And they're gonna be all over the map and they're gonna have questions and they're gonna be skeptical and some people are gonna be deeply convinced, but we're gonna have this dialogue together around a table where there's no questions off limits, no doubts have to be feared to be expressed. You can just share where you're at and what you're thinking about. And we're gonna continue to push people towards Jesus because that's what we believe, but we're gonna do that in a humble and a gracious way. The other thing that continually baffles me about church culture, and it's true, I think, of us, and I think it's true beyond us too, is that we are deeply convicted about some core truths. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're not, we're not wondering about those. We have landed in a number of ways on what we believe about who Jesus is and who God is and how the world is designed. We've landed on those things. But for some reason, that kind of deep conviction too often, too often pushes questions and doubts away rather than inviting them in. It should, people who are deeply convicted should be the best listeners and best question askers of anybody rather than the best talkers. And because we're better at talking than we are at listening and asking questions, we tend to, in a church like ours that is pretty doctrinally convicted, we tend to push skepticism and doubt out when it should be invited in. And so one of our desires is a church. Let me just say, like, if you're with us today and you're skeptical and you're, or you've been in church a long time, but you've got doubts and you're wrestling with those, you are in the right place. And we want to more and more become a church that because we are deeply convicted about some core truths about who Jesus is, that we are inviting that kind of skepticism and inviting that kind of doubt into a conversation so that you might walk more closely with God. Can we agree with that, church? So show up at this, all right? Come, be a part of it, it's fantastic. Now, you may remember, just kinda, you know, kinda pivot now, you may remember that in the, the kinda closing couple weeks of our series in Isaiah, we had about a three week span where we talked about sort of the marks of the culture in which we live and then the type of 
counterculture a church should be working to create in order to be effective at sharing Christ's love with people in that. Do you guys recall that as we looked at it? And if you don't, I'll catch up to speed, don't worry. But we essentially looked at the idea that the culture in which we live is marked by a lot of things, but maybe chief among them, we would argue, is relativism, individualism, materialism, sexual freedom of expression, and racial division. That those are really pretty big markers of the culture in which we live. And so the question that came to us as we were working our way through Isaiah was really, well, what kind of church would be effective at proclaiming the gospel and sharing who Christ is in that kind of environment? Like, how do you engage that type of culture with the good news that Christ has been crucified and resurrected and that you can have life in him? Like, how do you do that? And so we, we said there are eight things that should mark the culture of a church that if it did, that that church would probably be pretty effective in the cultural context in which we live. And so those eight things were this. We'll put them up on the screen. I'm just gonna remind you of them. They were these. It's a church that trains themselves to know and apply truth. In other words, is diligent about growing our, uh, the life of the mind and engaging real significant cultural topics and understanding how the gospel engages those. Number two, it cares for the vulnerable. Number three, has deep relationships with one another rather than just surface relationships. It's a church that is diverse in race, age, and economic standing. It's one that embraces a biblical understanding of sexuality. It is one, number six, practices spiritual rhythms that create margin in our lives. It is one filled with people that are great neighbors. And it is a church that practices disciplines of denial now, I want to spend the next two weeks, that's just a kind of a reminder of where we've been about a month ago, and I want to spend the next two weeks talking about number six on that list. Number six, creating spiritual rhythms, creating spiritual rhythms that create margin in our lives, practicing spiritual rhythms that create margin in our lives. I thought it might be fitting given that we are at the outset of the school year, Yes. When you're gonna have a lot of things coming your way, there's gonna be a lot of opportunities. And one of the questions that I think is important for us to be able to answer is, how do you say yes to what you say yes to? And when do you say no? How do you create a pace of life that is conducive to thriving in Christ? What does that look like? And so I wanna think a little bit about that. If you're like me, uh, I'm, I'm a, I, my wife and I joke that I'm a yes to no person. I'm a person that will say yes to just about everything that comes across my plate because it sounds exciting, it sounds good, and uh, honestly, because I think I'm more important than I actually am. Uh, and so I say yes to a lot of things. You're laughing, but it's true. And so I say yes to a lot of things, and then only until it's just like impossible to, to make it work will I say no and, and circle back on Which one, by the way, we've been biblically commanded to let our yes be yes, and if you're familiar with that verse, our what? Our no be no. So I'm, I was just disobeying a biblical command, so that's bad in and of itself. But I, I just find that I'm a person that wants to say yes to a lot of things. How many of you say you're a person that wants to say yes to a lot of things? Okay, awesome. You think you're important too. That's great. Awesome. We're all wrong, but it's okay. Uh, no, not really. I, so, uh, you know, I find that's true. You know, my, in my first year of marriage, this, it got highlighted in my first two years of marriage. When I was, you know, I was a, a pastor at another church down in Texas. And I'm talking about, by the end of my time there, I had five different jobs because I said yes to everything. Right, and I just, if somebody wanted to do something or needed something, I was yes, 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 yes. 
And I was putting my spouse, my dear precious bride in the awful position of having to say, Trent, have you really thought about, like, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. And, you know, and I would look like a crushed puppy dog every time because I thought, I want to say yes to all of this. It sounds so exciting and good, right? And thankfully, by the grace of God, a mentor in my life, a man named Tom Carr, sat me down for breakfast one time at Kirby Lane Cafe. And he said, Trent, how are you deciding what you're saying yes to? And I said, I have no idea. I just say yes. And he's like, that may not be the best practice. And, you know, he, he started to walk me through something that was really helpful to me, in essence, just sort of helping me understand, one, that I, I shouldn't be saying yes to everything. Two, just some realities of how to uh, set my family's pace in such a way that I was actually creating thriving for, at that time, just my spouse, but then in, in the future, my kids. And, you know, some of the things like the reality that I used to just always, um, like he asked me, how many nights a week have you decided as a family that you're going to be out of the house doing ministry or any other thing, whether it be playing basketball or going to do this or going to do that? And I said, we haven't decided that at all. He's like, you should probably decide that. That should be a family conversation about how many nights a week you're gonna be allowed to be out and then how many other nights you're gonna say, oh no, our priority is to be here as a family. I had never had that conversation in the first two years of my marriage. And so we sat down and we had that conversation. It was really helpful, right? And the thing that we sort of realized, the, one of the most helpful things to me was I used to always think, I used to feel bad saying no if someone needed something from me if on my calendar that night I had nothing else that was sitting there because I did not view time with my family as something I had put on my calendar. It was just what happened if nothing else was on the calendar. And so one of the things that he walked me through is he helped me see Trent. When you have like Thursday night blocked off as time that you're playing board games with the family or, you know, that should be intentional. It shouldn't just be the product of not having something else there. It should be something that you chose to do so that then when somebody came to you and as silly as this sounds, it was so helpful to me. When someone comes to you and says, are you free on Thursday night to help me with blank? My answer could legitimately be what? No, I'm not. Why am I not? because I've scheduled something there. What I scheduled was tickling my daughters and playing checkers with Emerson, who always beats me, right? What, what I scheduled was literally just spending time with the family doing little to nothing, right? That was so deeply important for me to have that. That was a gift from uh, an older man into my life. So, Here's why I bring this up about pace and I think about this pace of life and spiritual rhythms because as we begin the school year, I want you to have to ask the question. I might step on your toes a little bit today, okay? I want you to have to ask the question, am I being intentional and am I looking through a gospel lens at the things that I say yes to and the things that I say no to and how am I going about that? How am I thinking about that? Some of you may have some really good patterns there. Some of you may like, you're, you're equipped and ready to go. But my guess is that many of us, kind of like I was doing, you just are reactionary in how your family calendar gets set more than being proactive. And there is nothing that will sort of create a dynamic in your family life, in your marriage, or honestly in your single life. There is nothing that will create a dynamic uh, of chaos. And I think a lack of flourishing in Christ faster than if, and by the way, open you to to temptations and sin and all manner of things than being unintentional or reactive in how you think about the pace of your life. 
Now let me define one thing for you because as I talk about this idea of spiritual rhythms, if you're like me, I needed that term defined for me because it, it, it sounds like a musical term more than anything really. It's like what does it mean to have rhythms or spiritual rhythms? This is not a definition you'll find in any book, but here's how I think about it. Rhythms are essentially my pace plus my practices. My pace plus my practices. When I talk about engaging in rhythms in life, a life that has a sort of spiritual rhythm to it, what I'm really getting at is the pace, how much am I saying yes to, and the practices, what am I saying yes to, right? Does that make sense, church? So pace plus practices. When you hear me talk about spiritual rhythms, that's really what I'm getting at. What's my pace? What are my practices? And so what I wanna do today is in order to help sort of compel us, I hope, to be more intentional about this as the school year approaches and to set some good patterns in place, today I just simply wanna talk about why. Why is it important to live with spiritual rhythms? And I hope I can make a compelling argument to you so that next week when I talk about how and what that will look like, you'll perhaps be a little bit more open. Because here's what I know, is we all cling to our patterns in life, right? Like right now, whatever your pattern is of how you make decisions, you're pretty married to it. Uh, and so I'm hoping perhaps that I can get that grip off of those patterns a little bit and off of those practices to convince you that it's worth reevaluating and rethinking and then perhaps establishing some new patterns, some new practices and some new pace, okay? Yes? All right, awesome. So let's do it. So let's talk today. I just wanna give you three reasons why this is so important. Here's the first one and it's gonna be found in Matthew chapter six. The first one is this. Living with spiritual rhythms sets us apart from the materialism of our culture. Living with spiritual rhythms sets us apart from the materialism of our culture. Now, again, for that to be a compelling why, you have to understand why materialism is a bad thing, right? And we, we've identified that it's one of the markers of our cultural environment. And far too often as a church, we don't look that different in our patterns around materialism than the world does. But we, I think we perhaps don't look that different because we don't understand what is really at the heart of materialism. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. He starts in verse 19 and he says this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in some sense, he started this, this statement by being pretty straightforward about just saying, you should invest in eternal things more than investing in things that will fade and perish when life fades and perishes, which is just kind of, it's just good investment strategy, right? It's just going like, go for the long-term gain in essence, live for eternity, not for the blip on the radar that is this life. But then he says something at the end that is interesting and he's gonna, he's gonna even build upon that in verse 24 because did you notice that he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's not just giving us good investment strategy. He is recognizing the compulsion that material things and money have upon our heart, that they, that they have a drawing effect upon us, and he's saying it's dangerous, clearly it's dangerous for your heart to be overly compelled by these things because then your heart will not be what? 
on the things of heaven. That's the, that's the assumption he's making there, that these two things compete for our affections. Material things and God are, are in a competitive fight, so to speak, for the affections of human beings. Then go down to verse 24 because he even builds further when he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's about as plain a statement as he can make, yes? You cannot serve God and money. In other words, they are incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. To serve one is to despise the other. To serve the other is to despise the other. He, he is essentially painting this picture of materialism. And he's saying that materialism has at its very core something about it that makes it impossible to both serve God and to serve material things. Now let me ex- uh, sort of help uncover that for us a little bit if I can. Here's why I think Jesus is saying what he's saying about the love of material goods. Materialism as a concept is essentially this. This is what it is at its heart. It is the belief. So it's not just, a, 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 it's not just sort of a, an additional approach to life. It is a core belief about life if you're subject to materialism. It's a core belief about life that purpose and meaning can be found in acquiring things. That's really what materialism is. It is a core belief that purpose and meaning can be found through the acquisition of things. Now, if that's what materialism is, think about how directly contradictory that is to a life in God, right? Because what does God claim to to give us? Purpose and meaning, right? And he says, you seek your purpose and your meaning in me. The fact that you're created by me, the fact that you're loved by me, the fact that I have redeemed you in Christ, all of this is to be the thing from which you draw your sense of the purpose of life and the meaning of life, and then you live everything else downstream from that. You, you know that, right, church? You live everything else downstream from this headwaters of belief that says God is ultimate, he does love me, in fact, I am his, and I will live in light of that knowledge. And he says the reason you cannot serve both God and money is because materialism is secular at its very core. It claims to be able to give purpose. It claims to be able to give meaning that it cannot ultimately bear the weight of. So in essence, not to be too philosophical here, but just kind of drive home the point, right? Materialism and God are mutually exclusive because materialism is thoroughly secular in its approach. And here's, here's why that's important to understand, church. Because you can't be materialistic and still claim to worship God. You cannot be materialistic and still claim to worship God because you are subscribing to a secular philosophy and way of life when you are driven by consumption that is driven by materialism. Now, Oz Guinness, if you're not familiar with him, let me highly recommend just about anything he's ever written. Oz Guinness is a really wise cultural commentator. I think his most recent book is a great one called Impossible People, which is, a, is his way of arguing that the church, the people of God, must really be a different kind of people than the world at large. So a lot of what we're talking about here, I'll highly encourage you to get your hands on Oz's work. In an older book, Oz Guinness, uh, one of his older books called The Call, where he's talking about how do you discern purpose in life? Like how do you find purpose and calling in life? 
he says this, speaking about the need for believers to not seek their purpose from money, he does a masterful job of helping us understand the detriments of materialism or the detriments of seeking purpose through money, through the acquisition of, and the acquisition of things that money affords us. He says this, no one can master money without mastering the meaning of money. In other words, understanding what it exists for. And then he says that trying to understand the meaning of money causes us to ask questions like this. Why is there a problem related to money? What we've just been talking about. Why is there a problem related to money? In other words, why is it an issue? And here's what he identifies. He says five things. You can just hear these. I think they're very wise. He says the pursuit of money is insatiable. That's number one. The pursuit of money is insatiable. In other words, you can never have enough. You remember Rockefeller's famous quote, probably at the time he made it, he's the richest man in the entire world. If not, he's close to it. And someone asked him, how much, how much more money or how much money will be enough? And what's his famous response? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, right? The insatiability of money. Number two, he says, people in high pursuit of money think only about making money, not about what they could do with that money for the good. So that what money, because it's so insatiable, tends to do is it tends to, because again, what is materialism? Deriving purpose and meaning from the acquisition of things. If that's what it is, then what money does is it gets us thinking only about making more of it, not about what we would do with it. Because ultimately, money can produce much good, yes? Yes, absolutely. Number three, he says, the insatiability of money is a sign of other needs, power, protection, approval, etc. In other words, what he's saying is money gives us the illusion that these needs are being sufficiently met when in fact they are not. We all have a need. You might think, I don't have any need for power. You do. You have a need to be empowered to be able to do certain things in life without having to have someone be able to tell you, no, you can't do those things, Right? Freedom to uh, go to work, freedom to get married, freedom to raise your kids. You need a certain amount of empowerment. Money gives us the illusion that, these, that it is able to meet these things when in fact it's really not able to provide those things. Number four, he says the insatiability of money consumes a person. They become a shadow of themselves. And number five, the insatiability of money turns everyone and everything into a commodity. In other words, the insatiability of money turns everyone and everything into a product to be consumed. That's the one I really want you to get because I think it's probably the most profound of all of it. When you subscribe to a materialistic view of life as a core principle, what happens is the insatiability of money causes you to begin to look at everyone as a means to the end of how you can make more money through them. Everything is a product to be consumed. That's really at the heart of what materialism does is it, it, it causes our lives to be revolved around consumption rather than around production. And God has made us to be people who produce things for him in the world, who do, he has prepared us in advance for good works, right? Ephesians chapter two, uh, chapter two, verse 10. But what materialism does is it, it causes our whole lives to revolve around consumption. Now we talk a lot in America about being a consumer culture. I don't think there's probably much argument that we aren't one. We are a pretty consumer culture. The question becomes for a church, 
How are our patterns of consumption any different than the world around us so that the way we live is countercultural? Back to our main thing, right? Are we consuming in different ways than the world around us so that we paint a picture of a better way of life than the one that is marked by the consumption that is produced by the insatiability of money, which ultimately leads to no life at all? is a world that is being consumed by consumerism, seeing a church that takes a very different approach to the way it engages with material goods and the consumption of those things. Now you might ask yourself the question, well, what does, what does spiritual rhythms have to do with this? Like what, I mean, you're pointing out the sort of the, the detriments of materialism, and you're you know, kind of making an argument against that trend. But what does that have to do with spiritual rhythms? Well, perhaps you can connect those dots, but let me, let me help us connect them. The thing I want you to see is if you will engage life with certain spiritual rhythms, particularly in the areas of fasting and generosity, if you will engage life with spiritual rhythms where you are regularly practicing generosity and you are regularly practicing fasting, and I don't just mean from food, but regularly practicing foregoing certain things, whether it be technology, entertainment, right? Whether it be uh, fasting from purchasing certain things for a certain season. If you will engage in those things, you will by nature, because of those rhythms, set boundaries around your consumption, your patterns of consumption. And when you set those boundaries around your patterns of consumption because of the rhythms you've created, right? If I'm generous, I give my money away and so I don't have as much to spend on who? Me. So I'm going to consume more or less, church. Less, right? That's a good boundary to have. Right? When I partake of fasting, I am intentionally foregoing the consumption of something, whether it be food or technology or entertainment or whatever it might be. I forego partaking of that, consuming that thing. And when I do that, when I have a regular pattern of that in my life, I have put some healthy boundaries around consumption. And someone might ask, why would you ever forego partaking of anything that you enjoy? And the answer would be, so that I can know God more so that I can walk with God because I want to ultimately feast upon him. And so I have these disciplines, these rhythms in my life that I practice, not because I'm some sort of weird ascetic where I'm like, I'm just not gonna eat one day a week or I'm just not gonna look at the internet during these hours of the day or I'm just, you know, whatever rhythms you put in place, right? You don't just do those things to be some weird ascetic. You do them so that you might feast upon God. When you don't consume the things of the world, you are able to feast upon the things of God. That's, that's the point. So the first why, honestly, is that to be countercultural, to be to create the kind of church family we need to be, we have to be different from the materialistic ways of our world. Therefore, we must partake of spiritual rhythms that prevent us from living lives that are just filled with consumption, 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 consumption. I'll give you an example that I read about this week and I thought it was so helpful. Uh, Rod Dreher, who wrote the book, The Benedict Option, good, good read as well, 
who's talking in this chapter he has in the book called Man and the Machine, and he's talking about technology and our consumption of technology, and, uh, and he was talking about an interaction he had with a friend, a story he told about Andrew Sullivan, who at the peak of sort of height of his popularity was blogging and was read, I think, by millions, if not hundreds of thousands. And he said that all of a sudden, Andrew just dropped off the radar. He just was gone. All, he, all of a sudden, he went from being this presence in the internet and blo- in this world of blogging to just gone, and so Rod was wondering, you know, where was he? And they happened to be in the same town at the same time. And so they got together. And, and this is what he says in his book. He says, a few months later, we both happened to be in Boston and met for coffee. I could hardly believe how good he looked. He was fit and glowing and had a startling sense of serenity about him. Andrew told me this was the fruit of getting off the internet. And then a year later, after that coffee, in, uh, in, in New York Magazine, I think, Andrew wrote this. He, he writes for a living, so he wrote this. Every minute I was engrossed in a virtual interaction, I was not involved in a human encounter. Every second absorbed in some trivia was a second less for any form of reflection or calm or spirituality Now, I love that because I've been trying to put some disciplines around my consumption of technology as well. One of the things I find is that it means whole afternoons with not looking at anything other than perhaps a book. And sometimes I'm sitting on the couch staring at the wall. And that's really good for me because I have to reflect on things. I don't just, I'm an information junkie. Anybody an information junkie? I love learning new bits of information. I love reading, you know, I mean, I love getting on the Atlantic and Politico and ESPN.com. And, you know, I love listening to every podcast under the sun. I keep recommending them to you. You hear me, right? So I'm an information junkie. You know what's really good for me? To stop consuming information and to sit and think. So I love this. Now, listen to what he said next. Uh, So he said, um, every second doing that was a second less for any form of reflection or calm or spirituality. And then he said, multitasking was a mirage. I love that. How many of us convince ourselves we can be fully present in doing two things at once? We cannot. Women, you're better at it than us. I know you are. But I would still argue even you, in all your expertise, cannot do it. Multitasking was a mirage. This was a zero-sum question. I either lived as a voice online where I lived as a human being in the world that humans had lived in since the beginning of time. Church family, living with spiritual rhythms around consumption testifies to the world about where purpose and meaning are found in life, and it is not found through consuming material goods. The second reason why spiritual rhythms are so important, if the first one is they're important as a sort of combating technique to materialism, the second reason is really simple. Living with spiritual rhythms makes us wise. Living with spiritual rhythms makes us wise. Look at Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite Psalms. I still remember reading this when I was driving through one of the wealthiest parts of Dallas on my way at the end of college. I had to do an internship to graduate. And so I was driving to uh, this school where I was possibly gonna intern and it was in the wealthiest part of Dallas. And Dallas is a rich city to begin with. So if you're in the wealthiest part of Dallas, you are, you're in the high swankyville, all right? That's a weird way to put that. I don't even know what that means, but... I remember driving past these homes and I remember thinking, I was processing a call to ministry. I was processing whether God had called me to be a pastor and 
And uh, I, I hadn't totally decided yet. I didn't know for sure. I was, so I was praying, I was praying. And um, as I'm driving, I'm passing all these homes. And I remember just having this distinct thought. If you, just, if you say yes to becoming a pastor, you will never own anything like what you're being surrounded by right now. It will never happen. And praise God that I had read Psalm 73 that morning. Because as I had read, I just remember thinking, I, was, I happened to be fasting that day and I had read Psalm 73 as my time in the morning and, and it just was so helpful to me. Listen to Psalm 73. Asaph writing, he says, uh, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. We'll assume that was a compliment back then. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes, is my favorite phrase, swell out through fatness. That was the phrase that went through my mind as I drove through this rich area of Dallas. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Get that, get what he just said. He said, their lives look so good and I am so frustrated. And one of my frustrations is the fact that now even the people of God are kind of looking at them and saying, I guess that's the way to live. I guess that's how we should do things because everything seems to be going swimmingly for them. Even the people of God have turned back. In other words, he feels alone in recognizing that they, are, they, they have ill-gotten gains. They have, they have gotten these things through wickedness. This is not God has blessed them financially because they have been righteous. And this is through wickedness they have acquired great wealth and great comfort and great ease of life. And their eyes bulge out through fatness. And he is so frustrated. And even the people of God seem to have turned their attention and said, yeah, we find no fault in them. And then they say, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And then he's gonna go on to describe a completely different view of the same people he's just described. And he's gonna talk about how he recognizes that God will in the end show that wickedness will not triumph and it will not rule. And then he ends the whole thing in verse 28. I love the way he ends it by saying, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In other words, do you, do you get what's happened in this psalm? At the very beginning, he has one perspective and he is distraught and he is wearied and he is wondering, God, where are you? And even the, his brothers and sisters in the faith seem to have abandoned the knowledge that righteousness is the right way to go, like to, to obey God is the right way to go. It just seems like the wicked are having their day and there is one moment where his perspective shifts and what causes his perspective to shift? 
he goes into the temple of the Lord. He goes to pray. He, go, he has a rhythm in his life of meeting with God in prayer. And because that rhythm exists in his life, his perspective is completely changed. Have you encountered that before? You thought one way and then you began to engage God in prayer and you found everything shifted because you began to get God's perspective on that thing. You begin to become wise when you have spiritual rhythms like praying and meeting with God. Now in the Old Testament, right, he goes to the temple because that's where God's presence dwells. But what a rich blessing we have living on this side of the cross now where we have access to the throne of God all day, every day, without ceasing. We have become God's temple where his spirit dwells now because of what Jesus has done. And we can go, Hebrews tells us, boldly before the throne of God with our requests and petitions and appeals. We can enter into the presence of God any moment, at any place, and have a rhythm of meeting with God in prayer is what makes us wise. Think of wisdom as this. This is just kind of a, 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 a quick hitting definition. But think of wisdom as this. Wisdom is seeing, let me make sure I, I say it the way I wanna say it here. Wisdom is seeing and speaking about things as they truly are and then living accordingly. Wisdom is seeing and speaking about things as they truly are. So the psalmist sees things from one perspective and then when he begins to pray and engage in this spiritual rhythm, what happens? He sees things as they truly are through God's eyes. He begins to take a God-shaped lens to life and he recognizes, oh, I saw it totally wrong. That's not what actually is going on. There's something entirely different. That's the way it works when you begin to cultivate these spiritual rhythms. You begin to find, as you begin to pray, right? You begin to find that you grow in wisdom because you begin to obtain God's perspective on things. And that's just so deeply important, right? It's not complex. It's really simple, but it's so important. Maybe the most important why of why we need spiritual rhythms because we begin to gain God's perspective on things. One of the things you'll find is you begin to grow your muscles in prayer. One of the things you will find is that you will start out and you will think it's, praying for 10 minutes just seems daunting, right? It just seems daunting to, to be focused in prayer for 10 minutes. And then, but here's what's so interesting. I find this, I bet you have. Over years of doing that, you will find that 10 minutes turns into 15 and 15 turns into 30 and 30 turns into 45. And the next thing you know, you get up after an hour of prayer and you feel like that was not enough time. It just wasn't enough. I just needed more time. With you, And so then what happens is you start figuring out how to turn every moment of every day into a time where you are praying and dialoguing with God. You begin to just start thinking like, you just find yourself walking down the street and going, God, what's the, you know, you begin to find yourself driving to a meeting and thinking, God, what do, we, what do you want me to do in this meeting? And how should this go? And I really need some wisdom about this. And you just find yourself constantly dialoguing. You're listening to people talk to you and you're truly listening. But at the same time, you're also saying, God, how should I respond? What does wisdom look like in responding to what I'm hearing from my friend across the table here? You just find it, as much as money is insatiable, let me just tell you, the practice of prayer becomes insatiable. It just does, it becomes insatiable because the wisdom gleaned from it and the perspective gleaned from it, they just, they're, they're addictive. I don't know any other term for it. They just are. And you begin to just take pleasure in being with God. I mean, it's not just getting wisdom. It's just the pleasure of being with God. 
in prayer and, and recognizing like, as you drive in the car, you're here with me. As you're in this conversation, you're here with me. You know? So the last reason I wanted, the last why I wanted to give today is living with spiritual rhythms reminds us and others that God can be trusted. It reminds us and others that God can be trusted. Flip to Exodus chapter 20. And we're gonna look at uh, just a couple verses there. Now this is the 10 commandments. This is God giving the 10 commandments. And you may recognize as you talk about, as we talk about spiritual rhythms, that the most regularly talked about spiritual rhythm in all of the Bible is the rhythm of Sabbath, right? That we would work and then rest, work and then rest. And then God has designed us for work. He's made us to do it, but he's also made us for rest. And so we find it in the New Testament, we find it in the Old, it's just throughout the Bible again and again. In fact, Jesus encounters a lot of problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees over how he behaves around this idea of Sabbath rest. And so we recognize that it's this really crucial thing. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were told that if they didn't practice Sabbath, they would be put to death. That's pretty serious, right? And so in Exodus chapter 20, when he's giving the law, here's what I want you to see. I I think most of us don't really understand the concept of Sabbath and why having a spiritual rhythm of rest uh, and, and, you know, mixed in with work is so important in our lives. But I, I want us to understand that a little bit because I think it is important for us to understand that it is in resting that we will begin to trust God. And there's perhaps nothing more important to displaying Christ to the culture at large than being a people who trust God. Would you agree? That if we trust him, that's, pretty, that's a pretty compelling argument. If you're like, no, no, I, I trust him, so I give away my money. No, I, I trust him, so I give away my time and energy. No, I trust him, so I, I step out by faith to do things, or I step out to have conversations that are hard to have. I do all of that, because what did Isaiah tell us? I mean, if we learned anything from Isaiah over the last year, church, please encourage me. Right? What, what did we keep hearing over and over? Trust God, trust God. It was just like, Look, I was preparing the sermons every week and I was like, I get it. We're supposed to trust you, right? So again, when we have rhythms of, spiritual rhythms of work and then rest, we are displaying that we trust God. Let me show you how that works out. In Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse eight, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, he's giving the reason now in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so if you think about this, the question that you should be asking then is, okay, God is telling me that I'm supposed to have this rhythm of rest because he rested. He did it, therefore I'm supposed to do it. But the question might come into your mind, well, there's lots of things that God is able to do or lots of things that God does that I don't necessarily do. So for instance, right, when God rested after making the world and the universe and everything in it, when he rested, did he rest because he was tired? No, God does not grow weary, Okay, and so God is not tired. He does not rest because he's tired. Why does God rest? He rests because his work is complete. He works because his rest is complete. And this is the key to understanding why then we are supposed to rest because God rested. Look, listen, every other world religion, every other God that you could possibly serve will not invite you to rest. They will invite you to work in order to serve them. So you work and you better keep working. 
Otherwise, you might lose favor with me. But our God says, I want you to rest. Number one, he knows that we do grow weary, and so he knows we need rest. That's one, he's just a good father. He's just a good, gracious father who says, have rest, you need it. But the reason he ties it to his resting after working, and he ties our resting after our working to that, is because he is saying that when you rest, you will testify to the fact that I rested because my work was complete. And when we testify to the fact that his work was complete, what we're saying is this, church, this is the key. You are saying when you take a Sabbath rest and stop working, that you trust God to provide for you because ultimately all of his work of providing for us was completed at creation. When he ceased his work after six days, he said, everything you need, I have made. There it is. Now we build upon that, we shape it, we cultivate it. That's what God has called us to do. But he has said, I have made everything and my people will remember that I have made everything and provided for them that ultimately when they work for those six days, that's good, but they're just cultivating what I already gave them. So who is the one who ultimately provides? Is it us through our six days of work or is it him? It's him. And when we take a Sabbath rest, we testify to the fact that I will stop working as a reminder and as a testimony to the world that is watching that it is God who provides for me and I trust him to do so. Spiritual rhythm of rest, of Sabbath, testifies to the world that we trust God to provide for us. I love companies like Chick-fil-A who have worked this into their business model, who have said, we will trust God to provide and because we do, we will forfeit the money we could make by being open on Sunday. We don't need to be open on Sunday, we need to rest on Sunday and we trust God to provide. I find it baffling and amazing that no matter how many people in the world complain about Chick-fil-A's views on marriage and their traditional stance and their adhering to biblical principles, that no matter how many people object when Chick-fil-A comes into town in Boston, I don't know if you heard about this, but Boston was up at arms that Chick-fil-A was coming and they had protests day and night. As Soon as those stores open, there is a block, there is a line around the block. One, because it's darn good chicken. Two, because God knows how to provide for his kids. God knows how to provide for his kids. And I think, I think that business model is founded, I hope it is, is founded on trusting God to do that. God will give enough. And friends, there is no better testimony to the world. There is no better testimony to the world than a group of people called the church who live life together with spiritual rhythms enforcing that we trust God, reinforcing that we trust God. I'm saying yeah, I will, I will put this down. I will wait, because it's ultimately God that provides, not me. Yeah, I can make an extra buck today, but I don't need to do that. I'm gonna wait on the Lord. Those are just a few reasons why spiritual rhythms are so important. Next week, again, I wanna talk with you about like, what they might look like. Like, let's get real practical next week and talk about what they might look like, okay? But I hope that those at least prime the pump for us so that as we come, it loosens our grip a little bit and helps us see that, oh, perhaps I need some, some new thinking around these things. Let me pray, and then we're gonna sing to close our time together, and we'll be dismissed after that. So, Lord Jesus, we give you praise and honor. We do, we want to live life with the rhythms that you intend we want to look to you for things about how we should order our thinking around consuming things. And we wanna to look to you for how we should think about patterns of work and rest. 
We wanna look to you for all of these rhythms that you want to bring into our life and we wanna walk in them so that we might feast upon you, so that we might delight in you and, and love you more than we love the things of the world. We want that. We confess that we're weak to do it and so we pray that you show us how. Just give us guidance. Be gentle with us as you are prone to be in your goodness. And even as we sing now, Lord, as a church family, just help us to sing from hearts that have engaged with your word and are now wrestling, Holy Spirit, with how you want to apply that to us. But just help the, this singing back to you now to be a statement that we will not resist you in that application of your truth to our lives. We will partner with you. We will submit to you. Even as we sing, that's really what we want to declare to you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.